This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Good morning. I'm Kayla Benny from Ocala, Florida. And I'm Charlie Brister from the land down under. And you're listening to the monthly breeding and horse sales episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for March the 26th. This episode is brought to you by Supreme Top Form. Good morning, horse world. On today's show, we explore buying and selling horses in America versus Europe with the infamous Ronnie Reamer, better known as the German riding instructor. Then we'll travel down under to chat with Seamus Marwood about breeding top horses for sport and his great stallion wild card. We'll close out the show again with Mark Donaldson, partner of Unionville Equine Associates, diving into pre-purchase exams, focusing on flexions and continuing the physical exam. So Charlie, what's happening in the land down under? Well, we're nice and busy here. I've got three sales horses coming in next week so i'm looking forward to hearing what our you know guests have to say see if they've got any tips for me on how to move them on so it'll be interesting to see what we can do and other than that the sun's shining the kangaroos are hopping along past my window what's news up in ocala florida well you know what's ironic is i actually sold a horse on the day our first podcast came out like literally on the day um, so that was exciting. I sold it to a lovely young rider and he's hopefully going to fingers crossed. He's only six, but he's going to go do young riders in, in a few years. And, um, other than that, I mean, it's sunny, it's warm. I'm training a lot, jumping lots of fences and we're doing good. I've got two other sale horses to sell if anyone's looking. And yeah, uh, we're not yeah. going to try and sell anything, but if you want a really good horse, like I mean, the one to call. Absolutely. If you're in Florida or in America, you know, go visit SelkuthSportHorses.com. Um, <laughs> but, and if you're in Australia, apparently Charlie's going to have some, so that's great. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that we ever properly introduced ourselves. What makes us the rightful hosts to be doing the breeding and selling sh- show? Well, we're just like the most awesome people around. So that definitely qualifies us, undoubtedly. And I'm uh, an eventing, show jumping and young horse rider from Australia. And I met Kayla, don't know if we mentioned this last podcast, when I was working in Florida for Matthias Holberg in 2016. And, you know, we've just hit it off and we've been friends ever since over our shared passion for selling horses and neat tequila (laughs) that's one way to put it um yeah no i think i'm i'm basically the equivalent um in the u.s i ride young horses and i enjoy producing young horses and we've started a venture over basically in Chestertown, Maryland, um, buying and selling horses and trying to 
pair them with the appropriate riders. And uh, I just love it. I mean, I love producing young horses. I love the process. Um, Charlie has come and taught a couple clinics when he was in America at our farm. And um, it's yeah. it's a great venture. Yeah, I love teaching the clinics. Kayla's got a lovely farm there and some nice young horses. Now I'm back based just outside of Sydney. So I do a lot of teaching all up the East Coast at the moment. Uh, mostly jumping, but any any of the jumping lessons, you know, have a heavy focus on correct flat work and adjustability and responsiveness to the aids while trying to keep the horses calm and happy. You know, a lot of what I do comes from uh, equitation science and trying to understand the horse's psychology and biomechanics better than, um, you know, what we already do. So, yeah, I'm living the dream every day of my life down here. And I'm basically living the dream in Ocala, Florida. Um, but we do, I have to venture up north soon, back to the Arctic tundra. It will be cold. My husband was trying to tell me the other day, he's like, it's not that cold. It's only 45 degrees in the morning. And I was like, um, I walk outside in the morning in a tank top and I'm quite comfortable. I cannot go back to that. <laughs> oh, that sounds positively Arctic. <laughs> so no but the horses will like it and you know it, it will be good to be home and the the east coast in general is just a really great place to be for horses and um but we're excited to bring some really good guests and try to talk about buying and selling horses and what's what's the go on everything sounds like a plan Hyaluronic acid works by inhibiting the formation of inflammatory products in joints, which cause pain and cartilage destruction. Glucosamine has been shown to counteract the negative effects on cartilage of steroid administration. Glucosamine also serves as a building block for new cartilage formation. Glucosamine and hyaluronic acid do not cause the significant side effects that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents may induce. Visit Pan Am Vet Corps, that's C-O-R-P dot com for more information. Supreme Top Form Joint Supplement is a 99.8% pure glucosamine hydrochloride and 99% pure hyaluronic acid. It is concentrated and easy to feed and cost-effective. It is independently lab tested for purity, so you know that you get what is on the label. They have both dog and horse supplements, which is great for any horse person. You don't see many horse people without a dog. Visit Pan Am Vet Corps, that's C-O-R-P dot com for more information. And our first guest will be the German riding instructor, Ronnie Riemer. So Ronnie, if you could just give us a little bit of a rundown about your business, which is based in Ocala, Florida, for all the folks out there who don't know you. Yeah, um, so my name is Ronnie Reamer. My wife, Chanel, and I, we are running RCR Equestrian based in Ocala, Florida. We moved to the States in 2000, in January 2012, and then we uh, bought the property that we're currently residing on um, in 2017, started building our quite European-style facility on five acres here. Um, and moved in in May 2018. Our main business is lessons, coaching. I do a lot of clinics and, of course, imports and sales. 
So growing up in Germany, you are quite close to the Borendorf area and, you know, there's a lot of equestrian sport in that area. Who were your main equestrian influences as a young rider? Um, as a young rider, definitely, well, starting starting with, like, one of my very first coaches, like Klaus Greve, who is not that big of an international name, but in my region, basically, like, one of the most accomplished Grand Prix riders there. Um, from there, I went to Schockemöhle for six months. Um, and basically, from Schockemöhle, I went over to Franke Slotak for... A long time, and um, I would say every single word I learned from Frankus Lotak was, I think, what really put the foundation in, into my into my riding and my future career. Yeah, he's pretty legendary in the sport of show jumping. Uh, you know, known he is, he is. Even people down here in Australia know about him. Yeah, and I so mean, what I think, I think he is one. He he was one of the first guys that really started implementing just the feel between the horse and the rider because that was basically what, some of these things like when we sat down and he was sitting on the bench with his pipe he was one of the guys that always said like look you are not transforming a horse into your riding you adjust your riding to whichever horse you're sitting on i mean that's why he won the um the world cup when it was still with the with the horse change horse and rider change like best of four i mean he won it twice i mean that guy could sit on a horse for 10 minutes and figure it out instantly he just was that natural in the saddle that's definitely one of the hardest things is to adjust your riding a little bit to each horse, but I guess that's so essential. You know, if you're running a sales barn, is is that one of your better points of your riding you find that's helpful for sales? Oh, definitely. Um, especially in, the, in, in in our business, as, as quick as everything is moving these days and changing, and um, a lot of owners um, not being that patient like they were before, um, they just want to move move stuff quick. So you got to be able to adjust fairly, fairly quick, understand the horse, know how it ticks, how it works, what it likes, what it doesn't like. Um, put your horse in a comfort zone so that you basically have a happy partner that is happy to work for you and with you as a partner so that you basically can achieve your goals in the shortest amount of time rather than trying to you know, mold a horse into your riding, which is going to take forever, um, if not sometimes impossible. I mean, that's where you see <laughs> mismatching horse and rider combinations. And yeah. it doesn't mean that you have a bad horse or a bad rider. It's just like, you know, they do not adapt well to each other. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Ronnie, what made you come over to the States? Oh, that's actually a funny story. When I came over to the States in 2012, I was actually, I was, I was actually done with riding. I had a couple of really bad experiences with some shady owners in, in Germany. And I actually was over it and I was just, I was just looking for something else. And I was sitting in Germany on the couch and I have to say I'm a huge wrestling fan. WWE wrestling, that that is you know, it's like religiously. I'm like one of the, no, like one of the idiots. Yeah. 
And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. Exactly that guy. <laughs> so I was sitting on the couch, and, like, I mean, I was always the class clown, you know? And, I mean, like, looking now forward in 2000, what was it, 18, when we, no, it was 19. 18 or 19, I think it, it was the winter of 18, when I started with a German riding instructor. I mean, that guy, without the accent, is actually me. So, you know, I was always the class clown. I was always the guy that wanted to be center of attention and in the middle of entertainment. And um, I was sitting on the couch with Chanel, and we were watching WWE, and I just love the athleticism about it because, I mean, everything there is like, high-impact sport um, with the whole soap opera around it. And I thought, like, that is a fantastic mix of sports and entertainment. Because um, I, I used to play ice hockey before I started riding, and that was basically like my little, you know, like my, my vent where I was like, okay, I have too much, like, stored energy. I'm going to meet the boys on the ice, and then we just power it out. Um, which you call, which you should take into your riding when you say, oh, I got some, got some backed up uh, aggressions here. I'm going to ride a little bit. You know, <laughs> that is the time when you're like, you know what? I'm going to put him in a walker today. <laughs> yeah. to again. <laughs> so then I was sitting on the couch and I was thinking like, oh, and, and I look at Chanel, I'm like, that is so cool. I think I could do that. You know, mm -hmm. and I kind of kept saying that for like, Monday Night Raw, SmackDown, some pay-per-views, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, I think I could do that. <laughs> and then at some point, she looks at me, she pauses it, and she's like, dude, I'm sick and tired of you bitching here on it and saying, like, oh, I could do that. She's like, do it. She's like, if that is what you want to do now, do it. So I was like, oh, well, yeah. And then I, I found a little school in Germany, <clears throat> but you can't compare the impact of wrestling um, that that it, it has here in the United States compared to Europe. You know, Europe gets excited when WWE comes over, but there is no equivalent like WWE in Europe anywhere close. Um, so I went to a little school there, and I had some fun there, and I, and I met Nigel McGuinness, who was actually a big badass in the industry, and he's like, dude, if, if you really want to pursue this, you got to go to the States. And that's kind of like when I put my feelers out and I found a school in, in Tampa that actually was the developmental um, uh, branch from WWE, at that time still called SCW. And um, they did like a three-month beginner class. And then um, I flew over um, in the beginning of 2012 I did the beginner class, and I loved it. Um, and then I found out, like, after the beginner class, like, you, you do not stay there unless you get a contract from the WWE, but, like, after three months, they do not give you a contract. So then I found out that there was a school in Ocala, and I was like, well, that would be freaking brilliant because I can do the wrestling training here, and I have knowledge in the horse industry, so on the on the side, I can work, like, as a groom or something like that, because I really did not want to get on back on a horse, which was actually very sad for Chanel because she was like, God damn it. I always wanted to have a farm and Ronnie is a talented rider. It is such a waste of talent, but um, she stuck with me and um, 
for the first couple of months, I really didn't want to ride. And, and I told Chanel, I was like, look, the only time I'm going to get back and settle is if it is on my own terms, not, not riding on, on, a, on a payroll for somebody else. And, um, yeah, and then the wrestling kind of continued until we start, actually until we started building the farm. But in the meantime, that whole color atmosphere here with the horses, with the people, and then that southern hospitality really started just like, you know, that horse virus yeah. that is worse than the coronavirus. <laughs> that one started pulling me right back in. And then, then I started like sitting on one horse and on another, and I bought a pair of breeches again and just stuff like that. And that's kind of like when I transitioned back into the horse industry. Um, and I started like really getting attached to it again because I, I, then I got a couple of nice horses back and I really could do it on my own terms. And, um, then people started realizing that I have good connections to Europe. And that's how I then started putting like, like sellers and buyers together and was the agent in the middle. And I, and I flew over, I tried the horses and I did the whole homework about them. And then I just matched buyer and seller in, in, in that matter. And that basically started to get me back more into the riding and kind of pulled me away from, from the wrestling. Because the wrestling is, is amazing and it's fun. And I could see myself having a career there. But these guys have like 320 travel dates a year. Where I was like, okay, if I do that, why would I be married? Why would I want to have a house? You know, I could live in a camper and just drive around the state. And I always wanted to have a family anyways. I was like, yeah, that lifestyle doesn't really suit into it. Where in the horse industry, especially if your wife is just as a, as a nut job rider as, as I am, you know, you, you, you basically travel to all these shows together as a family. And that's when I made the transition and said, like, you know what? I, I do the wrestling now on the side and every once in a while the promoter still calls me and says, like, hey, you want to come over for a couple of matches? And then I just jump into my gear and go back. But that that horsey thing, it was in the back of my mind and I just needed a good experience again to reignite that. So making a short story long, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <I was gonna laughs> say. but entertaining. That was that was a lot well, more information. The thing is, like, the thing is, the thing is, like, if I would have said, like, well, I came over for wrestling and now I'm riding, you would have sit there with a question mark over your head and say, oh, okay, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, but I'm telling you, I, but I'm telling you, I was freaking amazing as a wrestler. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll so no, I don't want to find out. No Hulk Hogan moments, but yeah. um, back to the horses. So what are the differences that you've seen being in Europe with horses versus America buying and selling specifically? Um, okay, definitely from a starting point, um, tryouts are here way more extensive. Um, people want to try out once, twice, three times, want to take them to the show, want to have them in their barn for a week, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, like, I don't know how much that whole change now in, in, the, in the eight, nine years that, I've, that we've been here in the States now, 
But I just know, like, you, 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 you drove around, you sat on a horse. If you liked it, you asked them, hey, can I try tomorrow one more time? And then you made a decision there. And, um, like, if you would have asked somebody, hey, can I take it to the show? They would have looked at you like, uh, no. <laughs> you know, like, can you take a Ferrari for a test drive and tell the dealers that, like, no, no, you don't need to sit on a passenger seat. You just stay here. I bring it back on Monday. Like, that also wouldn't work. So <laughs> definitely the thoroughness of, like, tryouts. Um, and then definitely vet checks. I, I, I mean, I've, I've, never, I've never went to such big and lengthy vet checks on an animal that is that big. And, I mean, just meant to have some dinks and dents especially for the sport that we're asking them to do. You know, if, 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 I have a, if I have a 10-year-old Grand Prix horse that has nothing, I would question the record on that horse and see, like, eh, you know, you know the, body doesn't say, the, the, the body doesn't match what the record says, you know. It's just like professional athletes, you know. You, you, you do not have an NFL player that does not have a clean health record. Um, <clears throat> so this is where I see most of the difference. Cause I remember like most of my Grand Prix horses that I bought in, in, in Germany when I was still riding, um, even, even my nation's cup horse, we did flexions, all flexions were good. And then we saved our money on the x-rays, you know? And when I had one that was bad on the flexions, we took an x-ray on ultrasound, you know, but sometimes it was like three legs were good. One was a little bit off. And then you just, you know, you examine that leg, and if everything was fine, you're like, ah, you know what, he's good. You know, there's no hole in the record. He's running his heels off every weekend and winning. It should be fine. Sounds like you just used a bit of good old common sense there. What, um, what advice? Horsemanship. I would call it, I would, I would, I would more call it horsemanship, because, yeah. um, I think that is what, also a difference is between, between Europe that has centuries of, you know, the horse breeding, the horse dealing, the horse this and the horse that. I mean, Germany is, is breeding and having this, this horse industry gene in them for longer than the United States is, you know, together here. Yeah, absolutely. So besides... Besides telling Americans to be a bit more German, what would you like to see change or what advice would – if someone's coming to try one of your horses, what are some things that you want them to do and not to stuff you around, et cetera? Okay, so some, some of the things, like the first thing I would tell people is like, just don't bring your own saddle. Like, I, I really don't care about your saddle. I don't care if you have the 8,000. I really don't care if you have your $8,000 CWD Mademoiselle that <laughs> definitely does not fit my horse that you're trying right now. Because um, that is one thing that I always, like, coming again from, from that background with Frankie Slothak that said, like, you need to know what your horse needs from you and not what you need from your horse. So mm. you, you, you're coming for a tryout, or let's say we bring the horse somewhere to a tryout. So now we're changing. So the rider meets the horse for the t first time. It's not going to work as good as it does with me that knows the horse for 
weeks or months. Um, so there needs to be some grace period where you say, like, come on, it, like, of course, it's not going to be 100% at the first time. But now you're already changing the horse's whole warm-up, the whole jumping, the rider, the, the, the leg, the hand, the balance. Do you really now need to put a saddle on the horse that probably doesn't fit? Worst case scenario, pinches at the withers, at the shoulder, in the back, and then expect the horse to give you a perfect ride. Um, change as little as you can on the horse so that it stays in its most comfortable zone where it performs the best, and then adjust to the horse. And um, give, give horses a chance, you know. You've you, you got to start understanding horses. I've seen so many times that that trainers and, and students bought the wrong horse because they just couldn't look past some certain points. But then, you know, as then the professional on the other side, you, you just keep, you know, you keep a tap on what is happening. And then down the line, you're like, yeah. I gave them three weeks, they made it to two, and now it's not working again. If they, sh if they would have taken this one, they still would have had a good horse. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So do you import a lot of horses? Yeah. Like, like our sales horses are mainly imported, and mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the other sales horses that we have are imports from people that thought that were smarter than the ones that have the connections into the European market. Mm -hmm. Speaking of horses that I had to take on trade. Right. Where somebody said like, hey, I bought this four-year-old uh, amateur-proof Grand Prix prospect for <laughs> 10,000 plus import. It's not working. And I was like, what? Shocking. What? Sherlock? Shocking. Right there. <laughs> you know, if a horse like that is available in Europe for that price, you can be damn sure that a professional already would have snatched it because there are so many professionals out there that are at so many horse shows scouting like hundreds and hundreds of horses. And if one that good for that price pops up, it will not be available yeah. for sale on Instagram or Facebook. Absolutely. This one will be in a professional's barn. But then I am the one that then basically needs to work with other people's mistakes. And, um, I mean, there's a wise thing. It's always more expensive to be cheap, right? So now you're buying, now you're saying, like, okay, I'm that smart, and there's so much horses available online, I don't need a professional. I don't need an agent. I'm going to save this commission and just, you know, put it in my own pocket. So now you're buying the source that you've never seen that you saw three, four videos from, usually usually it's the same kind of video. You know, it's a diagonal, vertical, diagonal oxer, and then an outside line on a full stride with a vertical and a big oxer. And then I feel like I've got a couple of those. <laughs> so then the videos, the videos look amazing because, like, the jumps going up and the horse is just cartwheels over there, right? Cost, yeah. Like, keep in mind, it's like, under 20,000 plus import. You know, so you, you, you run about a 30 landed. So that horse just cartwheels over the top of the jump. What you don't see, you saw 10 jumps, maybe 15 on that video. There's no show video to that horse. There's no record to the horse because it's only four or five years old. Um, 
and you have no idea how many jumps this horse actually did to produce 15 that then made it into the final cut. Yeah, so you've got to be very, sorry to cut in there, Ronnie, you've got to be mm -hmm. uh, pretty diligent about that and have a good good coach and uh, person on your side such as yourself. We haven't even, it feels like we could talk for hours, we haven't even gone into your social media side of things, but you know we're going to keep this strictly to sales at the moment, so we might have to call you up for another podcast just to talk about the German riding instructor, but for Anyone out there um, that is interested in either coaching or a clinic or to purchase a horse in Europe, where is the best place for them to contact you or find you? Over the website. Like the best traffic is over the website because my, my phone is just a little bit too busy with calls and texts. Yeah. And, um, I, um, I also got like a, a little bit, it got a little bit difficult for me to keep up on, on all the social media platforms when messages come in where when emails over the website come in, it goes straight to the office and they are very diligent to work through there and they make sure that I don't forget anything, which I'm pretty good known for. Like my, 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 my Siri function is, I think, my most used function on my phone. Hey, remind me to do this. Remind me to do that. If I don't do that, I forget stuff. And, um, if if I if anybody's listening that I have uh, that I did forget to reply somewhere, please don't be mad at me. Stuff, so stuff can, like that happens to me all the time. So Everyone they need to go to www.rcrequestrian.com or check out exactly. the German riding instructor on Facebook, Vielen Dank, Ronnie, and we look forward to talking That's to you next pleasure. time. Awesome. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Call me, call me anytime. You know, Charlie, I've been listening to the Horse Radio Network for a really long time. And that is the first professional wrestler that I think they've had as a guest. And um, I didn't see that coming at all. <laughs> no, definitely not. I was very surprised by the WWE connection there. I think it's awesome, you know, that we got people in the hoity-toity Florida show jumping community that do something outside of riding. Obviously, he must like wearing tight clothing because <laughs> he's still in wrestling. But no, I'd love to see some footage of his wrestling days. Absolutely. We're going to have to definitely get pictures. I think we're going to put one of his pictures in the show notes. And um, that's pretty epic. I just wanted him on to talk about horses. And that went way the other way in a way that I didn't I even think. This think. Could this could start a new segment if anyone knows horse riders that have really interesting hobbies or Alt side hustles out there. You know, Alter Doug egos. Payne, he, can, he can fly an aeroplane. That's a bit too mainstream. We want yeah. something a bit out there. Yeah. Let us know. Send us a note. We're going to have a little side. Maybe for the auditors, we'll do like, you know, equestrians, alter egos, what they do on the side. <laughs> that could go anywhere. <laughs> oh, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> so we've got Seamus Marwood here all the way from Melbourne, Australia. He's a former top competitor. He's been a national selector for the Australian eventing team. And now he's a breeder of top show jumping horses. So welcome, Seamus. It's good to have you on. 
Thanks, Charlie. Good to be here. Thanks for the, the invitation. I'd have loved to have taken up that invite for the for the all expenses paid trip uh, stateside, but I thought coronavirus is um, bitten us on the on the bum, and we have to do it by Skype instead. Well, <laughs> we'll happily send you to China if, uh, <laughs> if we can pay for the ticket. So, so tell us a little bit about how you decided, Seamus, to make the transition more from competing for yourself and into breeding. Well, I'm still competing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, the um, fun stage now. I'm starting to be able to compete the, the young horses that we've been breeding, um, but um, not probably at the top level anymore. Um, my, my body's kind of got to the point where it doesn't allow me to uh, to do a great sitting trot anymore. Some of my days of uh, I was never that good in the dressage anyway, but um, I think if I was to try and uh, crack a sub-30 test now, I'd be uh, in the in tears. Um, but... Um, uh, I'm having a, a lot of fun still show jumping, and uh, you know, as I said, I'm now all of the horses we've got on the property now are ones that we bred out of our um, foundation mare that was Wild Oats, um, who's the probably one of the most successful eventing uh, jumping mares that, that um, I've had, um, and that all started about nine odd years ago um, when she, while she was still obviously at the top of the game as a competition mare, and um, we did embryo started doing embryo transfers. Initially, with a, a local stallion that was just down the road, a horse called Caracas, um, who was literally you know, 20 k's down the road from us um, here in uh, in Victoria. And uh, at that point, he was just a young horse, and um, I liked I liked the way he jumped. I liked his scope, and um, I liked his brain. And um, we bred to him, and on flushed an embryo on Christmas Day, and uh, that took, and that was um, the start of the program. And that that first horse is now has just turned eight. Um, and Caracas has now gone on to, to win a Global Champions Tour um, for um, Jos Verloy. He won the Australian Show Jumping Championships here for Jamie Kermond, and then Jamie took him overseas. I think he ended up being sold to, to the USA, and, and then he ended up back in uh, Jos's um, stable. And the, the young horse that, you know, that um, is now the eight-year-old is a uh, wild thing, um, who's now jumping around 145s and he's just about ready to jump on a plane and go to US himself, uh, unfortunately delayed by this uh, virus. So when you decided to go to Caracas, that was, that was obviously quite a good decision based on how that turned out. What, what made the decision to go to a straight show jumping horse because you were competing the mayor at the top level of eventing at the time and, and you'd been heavily involved in eventing where where did that yes. inspiration come from well, well i also i've always done a lot of show jumping as well i've done both and with wild oats um like she was a four now five star um, eventer but she was also a meter 50 grand prix show jumper um and and i love the challenge of show jumping and, and you know i saw that as being if anything for me almost a tougher challenge than eventing because you know i, I see eventing as being a bit of a fairly forgiving sport of, in, in forgiving in mistakes. And sure enough, if you make a mistake, you can it can be catastrophic, but you can make lots of mistakes. If anything, get away with them. With show jumping, you're really held to account. If you make a mistake, it's going to cost you four, four, four penalties. It's going to cost you a row. You very rarely get away with a mistake in show jumping. So in that regard, I see it as being a very different challenge. Um, and I've always found that really big show jumping tracks scare the shit out of me more than um, a big eventing track does, you know? so, mm. <laughs> um, And um, I also found that show jumping around bigger tracks tend to make the eventing courses look very attainable. You know, it, once you've been jumping around, you know, a metre 40, metre 50 tracks, you go and walk a, a, an advanced uh, cross-country course and they don't look that big anymore. 
Um, so you know, that was a lot of my motivation for doing more show jumping. Apart from the fact that you know, if you've got a good jumper, it um, it uh, ends up being um, a big advantage on day three of a three-day event, especially with the new scoring. Um, so I um, I always felt that she would breed a very good show jumper. Um, Caracas, when I looked at him, I, I also thought he was a good enough mover and he wasn't too heavy. I thought uh, he'd possibly try a good uh, avenging type himself anyway. Um, I love Casale, who was um, Caracas's sire, and um, Caracas's dam was an imported um, mare um, that also won the um, Pacific League of the World Cup uh, show jumping here. So I'm very much a believer in the mare line. Um, if you're looking at, at breeding, you, you've got to not just look at the stallion, but you've got to look at the mare that the stallion's out of and the mare that you're breeding. Uh, to, to me, that, that's really vital. You can't just breed rubbish mares. So, Seamus, um, this is Kayla, by the way. Hi. Um, <laughs> and I have a question for you. It goes along that line. So what do you think stallions bring to the table versus mares? Um, look, it's interesting. You know, Obviously, if you talk genetics, they're going to say, well, it's 50-50. But um, I personally believe that mares are more important than stallions. I've always thought that. Um You've got to have a mare with you know, good confirmation and a really good a good brain and and, and that sort of fight into. Um, I see now we're breeding. We've got our own stallion now, which is one that we've um, bred from Wild Oats, um, and, and we're seeing a lot of mares coming through to him. And, and you know, there's a great variety of everything from Connemara ponies to, to uh, some really really good um, four star. Avengers and, and uh, ex-World Cup show jumpers. So we, we're having a great mix. I'm going to be very interested to see in a couple of years' time um, how that impacts the progeny that, um, that he's throwing. Because um, having said that, I think that the mares are very important. What I'm seeing with this particular stallion, he, he's, a, he's um, out of Wild Oats by uh, Cannon. Um, he's called Wild Card. Um, he's very, very tidy in what he's throwing. So, so far, we've got three generations on the ground, so he's oldest to two-year-olds. And 90% of them are all very, very much like him. We have, we have very much his brain, his his type, his bone, um, his colouring and so on. So um, I generally, I think the, the mare is really, really important and, and brings a lot to the table. But I think sometimes you can also get a very dominant stallion too. Well, I know in America, um, a lot of the times people will have like a subpar mare. And I'm not trying to be judgmental, but... They'll just yep. think, oh, I'll just breed a really nice stallion to it. And they get yep. Yep. A, a slightly above average horse. But again, yep. it's on that more average side. So it's it's interesting to hear, you know, that you actually need a prove. I believe, and I think you believe the same, you need a proven mare to to bring all the cards to the table and have, have a good hand to get a really good breeding out of it. Is that correct do you think the same yeah look i i, I think to be, to be you know almost guaranteed of getting uh, that superstar you've got to you know, you've got to have a good mare to start with but you can always improve a good mare with a, you know, an average to okay mare. you can improve it with a good stallion yeah and, and what i'd say too in that regard kayla is that when i'm um you know picking a stallion for a mare i, I try to find a stallion or complement the mare rather than um fix whatever the fault is in the mare so if i've got a mare that's um, you know, a really, really good, got a really good front end on it, for example, um, and is, is quick and uh, quick off the ground and slow in the air. But I want to find a stallion that has those same attributes because then I know I'm going to get a, a good chance of getting that same thing in its progeny. Whereas 
if you've got a mare that's long in the back and and um, and, and heavy in the bone, and you you think oh, I'll fix that by putting it with a short backed light frame stallion, well, it's not going to work. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And you, you could end up with the worst of both worlds. Um, yeah. So I'd much rather compliment the mare uh, rather than try and fix what's wrong with it. Have when you're raising the horses at home, Shane, so you got. Obviously, Danny, your wife helps you quite a lot. Have you got any advice for any of the sm- small-time breeders or someone that's, you know, just starting out on that track for, you know, breeding or raising those youngsters? Yeah, sure. Look, I'll be honest, Charlie. We are small-time breeders, and we've got the one foundation there, and we've now got um, uh, the, the stallion um, who is now a six-year-old. Uh, by Cannon that's out of her. And we've also got uh, his twin sister um, who was uh, flushed. We had uh, twin embryos flushed at the same time. Um, and then we've now, uh, from them, we've now got, um, you know, maybe another 10 offspring from those two. Plus we've got some more out of wild oats as well. Um, but we, we're by no means big time breeders. We, we'll breed at the maximum for a year for ourselves. Um, so we are very much um, on, on the smaller scale. And, and I think the the best advice I could give is is to um, you know, really look look at what your budget is and make sure you don't go beyond that budget. Um, if you're having to do embryo flushes, which is what we you know we do predominantly because our you know, horses our mares are um, competition horses, um, it can get expensive and it can get really really frustrating. So you know, go into it with your eyes wide open. Um, Every time you do a, a, a um, flush, you've got to pay for the service. You've got to pay you know, the insemination. You've got to pay for the flush, regardless of whether you get an embryo. If you do get an embryo, you've got to pay for the transfer, regardless of, of whether it holds. And then at the end of the day, if it does hold, uh, then you've got um, um, more to, to fork out for the recipient there as well. So it can be a very expensive process, and it can be very frustrating, and sometimes you end up with nothing. Um, it could also be incredibly rewarding because – it's the only way you're going to be able to get a foal out of your competition um, mare um, while she's still competing. And, um, you know, sometimes those, you know, the good ones will go on until they're late teens. And, and by that time, it, it's, um, you know, potentially you know, uh, possibly too late to start breeding a maiden mare. Um, so it does have some great upside to it. But as long as you go into it with your eyes open, but it can also be very, very expensive and very frustrating. Um, yeah. We've had some great seasons and we've had some, some really, really uh, uh, annoyingly frustrating seasons. So, so um, Seamus, going on when you were talking about um, when the mares get too old or maiden mares, what do you think is the prime age to breed? When's too early? When's too late? Like, what are those ideal age groups? Um, look, it, it's it's going to depend a lot on the maturity of the mare. Um, our cannon mare, um, wildcat, uh, we bred her as a three-year-old. We put her to Quintero um, as a three-year-old, and we flushed an embryo from her. And then I put her in foal again to a three, uh, you know, a week later um, to have her, to carry her own foal. And part of my reason for, for that was she was quite a mature horse, and I wanted to take away the temptation to do too much with her too soon. Because um, yeah. if they're in foal, so I, I broke her in. I did all the preliminary work on her while she was in foal. And then she goes. She goes out, and she's turned out for twelve months while she's um, has the foal and, and and the foals at foot, and, and that worked really, really well because it takes away that temptation to do too much um, when they're too young. Um, on the at the other end of the scale, we've got uh, Panamera here now, who is Stuart Tinney's 
horse that won the Adelaide Five Star uh, and was shortlisted for the London Olympics. Now, she came to us as a 19-year-old, having never successfully carried a pole. Um, you know, she came to us when she retired, and we've now bred her. Uh, we've got two cracking uh, foals now. One's a yearling, and the other's um, just um, still on the mare. And she's now in foal again for a third time in a row, carrying great condition, really, really healthy, and, and loving life. And she's, she's a wonderful mother. So um, it really, really depends on the individual mare, uh, what their health is like, and, and what their maturity is like for the young ones. With those young ones, you've got Seamus. Have you? made a plan to sell any of them besides uh, or are you trying to produce them and then just market the stallion? Yeah, look, Charlie, we're very much in the in the idea of uh, wanting to produce horses. Uh, there are a lot of breeders out there who who produce, uh, who, who breed volumes of, of young horses and sell them as foals. Uh, we're not in that market. Um, as I said, we're only breeding, you know, three or four a year. And uh, my idea is that, you know, the, the wild thing, the, the grey, um, the Caracas one, he'll be the first one that um, hits the market um, once he's jumping Grand Prix. Um, and then we'll, we're going to have, a, hopefully, a, a train of horses coming through. The, the two six-year-olds, Wildcat and Wildcat, are both exceptionally good jumpers. Um, Wildcat won the Young Horse Championships for five-year-olds um, here last year. Unfortunately, that event was supposed to be, uh, again, this week, but it's been cancelled due to the coronavirus, so we're not able to go and defend that championship, but um, we're hoping to, to produce them all up to Grand Prix level. Um, and then, and some of them will be eventers too, and, and they'll be produced to at least uh, three or four star before they're sold. Um, because, you know, for me, that, that that's where uh, the genuinely good money is, and I think that they're all going to be about quality horses. So we're not dealing in volume, we're just dealing in, in quality. Yeah, I can certainly attest to that. To all our listeners, I've uh, ridden Seamus's stallion only only briefly. He let me trot over a couple of poles, and I can tell you all that it's a pretty impressive feeling when you're doing that. So thanks very much for coming on here, Seamus, and talking to us about this exciting young stallion and the breeding program you've got down in Melbourne. We can't wait to uh, see you out and about once this coronavirus lockdown finishes up. So anytime, Charlie. Happy, happy to have a chat uh, with you on your day. And you too, Kayla. Um, I look forward to when we get back over there to, to visit you all again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Good on you, Kayla. See you later. Okay. So we're going to finish up our whole episode with Mark Donaldson of Unionville Equine Associates, um, which is located in Oxford, Pennsylvania. And um, he briefly talked to us last time about um, the general exam of a pre-purchase, but we're going to start diving down into the specifics. So, Mark, what do you have for us today? Oh, okay. So we're, we're jumping into the specifics for the purchase exam. Um, well, I think last time I talked a little bit about like the sort of discussing things with the buyer and seller about their goals. I think we sort of reviewed reviewed that. So um, now we're sort of on the farm looking at the uh, the horse in question. And uh, shall I sort of review uh, the routine I go through? Is that helpful as far as uh, just starting to examine the horse? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, usually, when I when I get there, I, people want to bring the horse right out. But I usually have them leave the horse in the in the stall, and, and it gives me a chance to uh, look at their behavior and, and a chance to talk to the the agent that uh, owner trainer that's uh, representing the horse, which is a good time just to 
see what their, uh, their temperament's like and their behavior. And um, the other thing about those, I usually start the exam in a, in a, in a dark area, um, a stall, dark stall, so I can look in their eyes and it's usually quiet there as well and I can listen to their heart and lungs and, and abdomen. And also looking in their mouth in a dark area, usually with a bright light makes things easier. So I do have a, a certain routine, uh, probably like uh, trainers and riders out there, you have a routine about how you uh, approach working with a horse. A, a vet has much the same. So that's the routine. I, and I do that mostly because everyone's excited about the, the, the lameness portion of the exam, the performance portion. portion. So I try to do all the other little things uh, first so that we don't get distracted. So anyway, I'll accomplish some of those those basic uh, uh, basic evaluations, and as I go, I usually try to be as much as I can um, uh, sharing what I'm seeing and feeling and hearing, and try to qualify that um, for for the uh, buyer if hopefully they're present at the time. So I'll let them know that I see something abnormal, and let them know this is you know. Uh, something really serious we need to investigate or a, a minor issue that's uh, not worthy of concern. Um, and then uh, usually take them out into a well-lit area just to go over their uh, their body, uh, the skin actually, because it's the one thing that most owners will uh, perceive because they're grooming every day. And so I want to make sure that I go over that. <laughs> There's nothing uh, unusual there in their, in their skin that, that they uh, might need to be aware of. And then uh, the next step is the is the musculoskeletal exam, and the way I approach that is um, starting uh, sort of uh, nose to tail along what we call the axial skeleton, which is the you know head, neck, back, uh, pelvis, and I'm looking at that portion of the of the body, and then going over the uh, the appendicular skeleton, or the appendages. So I was going over their legs, you know, from top to bottom. And that's how I sort of organize my, and my approach. And um, I like to go over there. Go ahead. Yep. Well, and when you're going over, so are you looking for like lumps, bumps, filling, yep. heat, all of that sort of stuff? Um, you know, are you palpating, seeing if there's any yeah. painful yeah. spots? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, with, uh, with the neck and, and back and things like that, also going through range of motion, that's a big thing on the neck, back and pelvis is putting those areas through a range of motion, you know, how everything bends is the neck we're using, you know, treats to get them to bend and using our hands to ask them to lift their back or flex their pelvis, um, going down the legs, it's putting them, you know, every joint through a range of motion, my hands on every joint, every tendon, every ligament, that might sound like a lot, but when you do it a lot, like you all do when you're grooming or preparing a horse, is it, it becomes like second nature, like right. putting your socks on. So you, you know, going over that, it comes very, very, actually very easy. Uh, now, are you also kind of aware, like say it's a horse's personality, maybe they're a little hypersensitive and they overreact to something. Will you go back and do it again just to make sure yeah. or do it a couple of times? A, like I know I have a couple horses that would yeah. definitely jump if you poked at certain areas on their body. And, yeah. but if you do it repetitively a couple of times and then they calm down, is that something that you're aware of or do you just kind of take note of it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great question too. Um, 
some horses are just, you know, uh, maybe it just happens with age or, or with personality or just real stoic. You know, they don't really talk to you when you're working on them. And they just kind of stand there. And that, that's, that can be hard to interpret unless you find that one or two or three little spots that they do react to. Then you know maybe there probably is something going on there. And, and that's in contrast to the horses you mentioned that are just like a little touchy and fussy. And gosh, everywhere you touch them, they seem to move away from you or react. And you know, those are horses are hard to interpret because you don't know you know, which of those areas really are significant or whether they're just sort of a, a very sensitive, thin-skinned, you know, or temperamentally reactive horse. So you do, you're do, right. You absolutely have to get a sense for their temperament to interpret all that. Do you have any preference when you're vetting a horse if the potential buyer is there or not there? You know, I'm sure you're used to working in front of a lot of people, but do you find it easier if they are there, if they can make it in person so you can give them feedback straight yeah. away? Yeah, it is nice. I mean, I think for communications and, and, and for their assessment of what's actually going on and what's being evaluated and the significance of it for them to be there is, is great. You know, I, I do I do like that because I can make sure all their answers, all their questions are answered and, and uh, they can see what I'm seeing and interpret the significance of it and make sure that we're on the same page about what, you know, what they might be concerned about versus what I might be because, you know, we all have mm-hmm. different things that, that concern us. Um uh, you know, having said that, I, you know, do a lot of them without the, the, the buyer present and just make sure I take good notes and take pictures and, and communicate as fully as I can. Because, um, like I said, not, not, not uh, everything is uh, that's important to me might be important to them and vice versa. So I have to be, you know, complete and accurate and clear about what I'm seeing and make sure they understand everything. Do people often ask to get videos of the flexion tests or anything like that? Yeah, they do, and and I certainly don't mind doing that. I think it is helpful again to help them interpret what we're seeing, and and they might pick up something that they that I hadn't uh, explained to them or that they see, and then I can clarify that you know about a response to to a flexion or the way they're they're moving, and and uh, I frequently look at videos before I see the horse. Someone if someone has a video of the horse going, I'll, I'll look at it even before I get to the exam to discuss that with the buyer about what I saw or what we should maybe focus on given what we have. So I certainly like really enjoy from my experiences with my wife and daughter eventing and doing dressage. So watching horses go is, you know, for me, it's a really actually enjoyable uh, thing to do. Um, being a vet though becomes an occupational hazard that every horse that I watch go, I do a lameness exam on in my, in my mind, which is kind of hard. Yeah. Sometimes I just need to sit back and watch them go. <laughs> Um, so you've you've done the overall body exam and then where do you go from there so from there so now we've gone over them i make my all my notes about what what areas i might have concern and usually from there um i'll uh uh, jog them uh lunge them um deflection tests and then um watch them being ridden um so i like to see them first without uh, uh, without a rider, um, just to see how they move naturally. Um, sometimes it, when they're not giving any aids, they, they may, uh, show some things that, um, like if they have a tendency to, when lunging free to, uh, to cross canter or something like that, when they're not given a rider's cues and aids. Yep. Um, but then sometimes when they are given those, uh, they can, uh, react or behave in a certain way that indicates that, that what they're being asked to do is uncomfortable for them. So I get mm-hmm. something from 
both lunging uh, and from watching a horse, you know, being ridden. And so, uh, with flexions, what are you mm-hmm. what are you looking for? So, explain that <laughs> yeah. for for the public. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a great, yeah, good question. It's a hot topic too. Yeah. I guess I'll start by saying I try not to overinterpret them, and I I say that because many horses that I examine on a regular basis for my clients that are competing regularly will have a maybe an abnormal flexion test, but are able to do their job really well. Right. Um, so sometimes the, the flexion doesn't necessarily correlate with a performance problem, which is hard to understand, but um, it may be that we're putting a stress on a joint um, that isn't um, natural or doesn't maybe occur when they're performing. Um, so we're flexing, and usually when a horse is um, competing, they're more likely to have it actually have that uh, joint extended. Um, so, uh, you know, what we're doing is a little unnatural. If it is abnormal, the horse limps a lot after you hold the leg in flexion for a while. Like it's going to bring our attention to that joint or that area of the body, and we may decide to do extra uh, evaluation of that, whether it's radiographs or ultrasound, to say, hey, what is that? And, is this something we need to be concerned about or is this a, a, a minor abnormality that's unlikely to have, you know, uh, future problems. So how common and that abnormality it, might, yep. Yeah, yeah, how common would it be Mark for, you know, the horse to flex up, not, a, not quite a hundred percent and upon further diagnostics, you know, that you can't really find anything else. So yeah. How common well, would it be yeah. for a horse to present like that? Yeah. It definitely happens, uh, for sure. Um, and maybe it depends on it would have to depend on the extent of diagnostics you're doing. Like for example, if that if that pain is coming from a soft tissue problem, yet we're only doing radiographs, um, then we might miss a lot of soft tissue abnormalities. So the radiograph might look normal, but the pain is coming from a, a tendon or ligament around the joint, and uh, so it might not uh, may not show up. Uh, you know that abnormality may not show up on the radiograph. So it's, yeah, it's very, it's very possible. Um, so depending on how far uh, someone wants to go to, to sort that out and what the horse's history is and intended use, and uh, we'll all have to be taken into consideration to determine whether that's a problem or not. Have you ever had uh, a seller try to pull the wool over your eyes uh, with a vetting? You know, I'm sure there's some people out there have sort of tried to come up with dodgy ideas on how to trot horses or I'm sure you've seen it all. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. He, he thinks so. Sure. He, but the uh, the wool so. was pulled over. Yeah, I think so. I, I'm sure people have, um, you know, do things that that, that make the horse more uh, presentable. Uh, whether it's the way that they maybe prepared it earlier in the day, or the surface that they want me to see it on, and, and sometimes there's a limitation at the if I'm doing the exam at the farm. You know, there may be some small limitations to the type of surfaces that are safe and available for the horse to be examined on, which probably has some, you know, will definitely have an impact. So I'll have to mention that to the to the buyer or we'll come to some compromise on that. So I think, you know, maybe the surface they might ask, they ask or, uh, for a certain surface uh, to be examined on, that would definitely have an impact. So speaking mm. speaking of surfaces, so typically you're going to want to do flexions on hard ground, correct? Correct. It's uh, usually because that's going to the concussion is going to make things look worse. It's also even. Usually it's flat and even, so mm-hmm. the evenness of it will kind of bring out the your eye will catch the lameness more on a very even flat ground, 
Uh, if the ho- if the, the footing's a little uneven, like a you know a sandy outdoor, then their gait might not be as even because of the footing, and that's hard. It makes it harder to pick up the lameness. And on top of that, obviously, it's not as much concussion. Yeah. But the soft tissue problems is probably what you're gonna, yeah the soft tissue issues might show up more on a on a softer surface. Um, so it's nice to see them um, evaluate the impact of concussion on a hard surface when I'm just jogging them up and flexing them, but then also see how that changes when they're maybe lunging or being ridden on a more forgiving or softer surface. So you get to, if you're fortunate and you have all those things there, you can see you know, both sides of the story. Do you use the, the lameless locator t- technology at all in your vettings? I, th- Oof. I think Kayla just had a heart attack. She, I think she, she, she's going to roll over here. So, I, you know, I, I, um, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think it would be an unreasonable thing to do. I think you would, it's so sensitive um, that I would probably prepare someone to say, hey, this is just another tool. Um, like radiographs, when digital radiographs became available, they were very sensitive and picked up every little shadow and nuance of the bone. And we had to like be aware of that. And I think a lameness locator is very similar. It's a very, very sensitive tool. I use it a lot and I really like it. Um, but I think we'd have to go into it saying, Hey, it's going to pick up something little here and there. And it may not be a reason if it does pick up something, it might not be a reason, uh, to pass on the horse, but it might be a reason to further investigate that, that limb. So Mm. if if it had a, what would say we have an impact lameness on the left hind limb. Well, then let's make sure we fully evaluate that limb and make sure that there's nothing there that's going to um, going to cause a problem. And that could be really useful. It might be you take some extra radiographs and and protect your investment. Um, you might still go forward with a horse depending on the severity and and its you know intended use. But I, I think it's a really good tool. I haven't well, incorporated it, but I think it's a good tool. It just has to be used as a, as just what it is a tool. Well, and I and I absolutely agree with you. And it's not that I'm saying oof because I, I think it's a really good tool. I think that some people read too much into it. Right. And I put mean, you put a lameness, yeah. you put a lameness locator on me, and I'm going to be lame. Like uh, there's right. somewhere yeah. on my body that's not functioning properly. But am I going to do my job correctly? Absolutely. Um, now yeah. I can verbalize. So I can tell you that mm, my hip hurts today, um, where a horse cannot. But I think that, um, I mean, it's a really loaded, that's a really loaded question, the lameness locator. I think that yeah. it's, um, I don't know what Charlie's opinion is on it, but I think it's a really helpful tool when you're trying to diagnose something like an underlying lameness that you don't completely understand. But as yep. a for a vetting, Open the can of worms. It really yeah. does. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's definitely yeah. useful. The vet came here the other day. The only lame thing they could find at this farm were my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's very positive. Well, I think the, uh, yeah, flexion's definitely, they're probably one of the more stressful parts of the vetting. So it's good to have someone that's pretty, uh, you know, experienced with that and someone that's very open and honest with the communication. So, it's great to have you on, Mark, to talk about that and sort of explain to people exactly what's involved, but also, yeah, how to be a realistic and what tools can be useful at other times. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Mark. And um, we can find you at ueavet.com, correct? That's right. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. 
Perfect. Well, um, we will talk to you next month and we're going to dive in from what we find on flexions to what we see on radiographs. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. Thank you. See you then. All right. Well, we've had some pretty interesting discussions there. That's for sure. And we've got a few questions coming in from the audience. So we're going to try and get to them in the next episode. And if anyone listening today has any questions or, you know, they want us to look into something a bit more deeply, send that through. Horses in the Morning has a contact page. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm Kayla Benny, and I can be found at Selkuth, that's S-E-L-C-O-U-T-H, sporthorses.com. And Charlie, where can they find you? All over the socials. Got Brister Equestrian on Instagram and Facebook. Or you could look at my very outdated website, bristerequestrian.com. Fantastic. And you can find the links for today's guests and show notes at horsesinthemorning.com. You can also follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search Horses in the Morning. You can have all the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone or Android. Go to your app store and just search Horse Radio Network. Thank you to our sponsors, our title sponsor, Supreme Top Form, and Selkuth Equestrian and Brister Equestrian. And remember, riding like life doesn't need to be perfect to be wonderful. Give your horse a pat after every ride.